Isaiah chapter 21. We've been working now for quite a long time through the book of Isaiah. I started to say through the gospel of Isaiah. Feels like it, for it unfolds so many wonderful gospel themes, both the condemnation that our sins deserve and the glory that is ours in Jesus Christ. It carries with it the sweep of all of human history, from the condemnation that we were under in ourselves to the coming of the Messiah, to the glories that await the people of God in the age to come. It is a tremendous book. And you know, sometimes I think as we're going through this book, verse by verse, or any book like this that we do, it is, it is easy sometimes to lose the forest for the trees. We forget where the whole thing is going because we're sort of slogging away through some difficult passage or another. And certainly the passage that we'll look at this morning is a challenging one. I wanted to take just a moment and remind us of where we are in this book. Many people have said that you could really divide the book into two halves. I mean, that's probably the easiest way to divide it. It just sort of naturally seems to fall that way. The first half up through about chapter 39 really being primarily about the judgment of God. And then from chapters 40 onward, really emphasizing more of the glory and the hope of the gospel. And really, you need both, right? I don't know if anyone is really converted who has not come to terms with his, his own sin and an awareness of the judgment of God that should rightly fall upon him. But when he does, when he is humbled by that, when he's broken under the law, when he recognizes his, his need before a holy God, oh, then good news is ready to be good news. And so that's the way this book unfolds. So we're in the first half, which has really been taken up in a large measure with the judgment of God upon sin. And that's a, you know, that's a hard thing to work through week after week after week, but it's such, if we'll let it have its good effect in our hearts, it is such a good thing for us to be reminded of, even repeatedly like this. So we're in a chapter, in a section that really unfolds the judgment of God in terms of the day of the Lord. That was a term that was first introduced to us back in the second chapter, if you remember. And it really is the first time in the entire canon of Scripture that that term is really brought forward like that. But Isaiah uses it repeatedly, as do a number of the other uh, prophets. Isaiah uses that kind of terminology 40 times, or excuse me, around 60 times in this entire book. Uh, All but five of those references fall in these first 40 chapters. So you can see that this is clearly an emphasis on, um, well, the day of the Lord, which is a time when God's sovereignty is put on grand display, both in His judgment of the unbelieving wicked and in His deliverance of those who trust His Word and wait for His promises. That is the day of the Lord. And it unfolds. The Lord has His day at different times and in different places. But all of these manifestations of the sovereignty of God as He sort of breaks into history and vindicates the righteous and judges the wicked, those all are pointing us forward to that day 
when the Lord, our Savior, returns visibly and judges the entire world. So we're in that section that deals with judgment, and it really is broken up into three parts, this first 40 chapters. The first part of it, which we've already been through, deals with the day of the Lord for Israel, for Judah. This really is the first 12 chapters of the book. And of course, judgment begins in the house of God. But then the second part of that first half of the book is chapters 13 to 23, and there we find the day of the Lord for the nations. And then finally, he begins to envision the day of the Lord for the whole world, chapters 24 and following. So right now, we are in the middle of that middle section of this first half of the book, the judgment of God upon the nations. And that judgment is set forth in two sets of five oracles. That's the term that comes up again and again, the oracle of God, the word of the Lord about His purposes and particularly, most heavily, his purposes uh, for judgment of sin. These are the oracles concerning the nations. And we have in the first set of five, which runs from 13 to 20, which we just finished last Lord's Day, that first set of five oracles, he is pronouncing his judgment upon clearly identifiable historical nations and situations. So Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Syria, and Egypt, each of these in turn receives a word from God about how God is going to bring judgment upon them for their many, many sins, their idolatrous departure from the one true and living God. And as God's judgments on those nations played out in the course of history as as the people of Israel and Judah watched God's prophecies about those nations come to pass, it was intended to encourage their faith in His Word and to discourage their trust being in any of those other nations, but in the Lord God Himself and in every word that comes from His mouth. And hopefully it's had that effect even as we've read it, looking back on the fulfillment of those things. But now we begin this morning a second set of five oracles that run from chapters 21 to 23. And these oracles seem a little different in their flavor. They come back and kind of cover some of the same ground in a way, but with a very different sort of perspective. The oracles are given mysterious titles, ones that are not easily identifiable. There are fewer easily recognizable historical situations and contexts in these second five. They seem more symbolic in many ways than the first set of five as if these oracles pointed beyond their immediate historical context, really to the eschatological judgment, the end-time judgment of God. And I think really that's where this section is beginning to turn now, and chapters 24 and following is just going to bring that to its fruition and really say that all of God's judgments on these nations are, are foretastes of His judgment upon the whole earth. So that's really 
this section, we're kind of driving towards that. And you can see that kind of really in the way that it unfolds. Take a look then at our text. This is the Word of God for us, Lord, friends. This is the Word of the Lord for us this morning. Let us have ears to hear. Chapter 21 and verse number 1. The oracle concerning... Now, we've had a lot of historical nations in that slot. The oracle concerning Egypt and Philistia and on and on. What about this one? The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. (laughs) So what is that, right? Where is that? Well, I think the best thing right now is just for us to hold that there and come back to that and just continue to read the text looking for clues as to what the Lord is revealing through Isaiah the prophet. So here is the beginning of that oracle, verse 1. As the whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, let me just pause there to say that the Negev, you may remember, was the desert, the southern desert in Judah, the far south of Judah. Far as you can go south in Israel, there's the desert down there um, called the Negev. And those winds blow across that desert and stir up that dust until it becomes kind of just this ominous dust storm coming towards you. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. And Phoenix, as you know, is very dry, very deserty. In our front yard, most people, they didn't plant grass. You planted rocks or dirt. I mean, that's what, that's what, that was your yard. You didn't plant it, but that's the way people had it. And uh, sometimes we would have these huge dust storms that would roll across the Phoenix area. Phoenix is in a very flat sort of plain surrounded by all of these mountains, uh, the Valley of the Sun, they would call it. And there were certain meteorological conditions where a storm was kind of uh, wearing itself out and that cold air now would fall down. And as it fell down into this thunderstorm, it would push the air around it out and that air would pick up the dust of the desert and it would just be this sort of rolling wall of blackness coming towards you. I remember driving west on Interstate 10 one time and just watching, they called it a haboob, watching this huge wall of black, ominous storm, dust storm rolling in out of the desert and uh, having to really pull over because when that thing hits you, I mean, it is just almost like pitch dark. I mean, it is hard to see anything depending on how thick it is. So that's the picture here. The same thing, of course, happens in the Arabian Desert. I think that's probably where that terminology originated. Um, But the same thing happens. The winds blow across that desert, and sometimes they blow up from the southeast across the Arabian Desert and through the Negev, and, and the people of Israel watch this, roll, this uh, storm rolling in, this, this dark cloud of doom. That's the picture. He says, as verse 1, as the whirlwinds of the Negev sweep on, in that way it comes from the wilderness. Whatever it is, we'll just leave it unstated for now, It's coming, just like that storm comes across the desert. This thing is coming from the wilderness, from a terrible land, like a haboob, this ominous, unnamed threat is encroaching. In verse 2, Isaiah says, A stern vision 
is told to me. So he's seeing a vision that is troubling, grievous. And here it is. The traitor betrays, the destroyer destroys. And that just makes everybody scratch their heads and say, what is going on? It's not really very explicit. It's just this sort of vague sense of foreboding coming towards the, the seer, the, the prophet. And in this vision, the command goes out then, in the middle of all of this, go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Media. Elam, you might remember, was a, an ancient country in kind of what is sort of the southwest part of what is modern-day Iran. It eventually became part of the Persian Empire. So he speaks to Elam, and he speaks to Media, the ancient territory of the Medes, who were in close connection at times with the Persians. So God calls these nations to sort of lay siege. And when they do, verse 2, middle of verse 2, all the sighing she has caused, whoever she is, all the sighing that she has caused, I will bring to an end. So this oppressor, who is going to be judged now, is spoken of under the, under the figure or the image of a woman. And apparently the destruction of this woman by these nations is something that the prophet longs for, but at the same time, it fills him with this intense grief. Look at verse 3. When he sees this vision, he says, Therefore my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I mean, what he sees is just gut-wrenching for him. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. For the twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. And that is the way I think that the judgment of God when it comes affects His people emotionally. For on the one hand, we long for the judgment of God. We long for the vindication of His people. We praise God. We read in the book of Revelation, people giving God praise when He brings His judgment about. And yet at the same time, that day, that judgment of the day of the Lord is so awful that, you know, as fellow human beings, it just sort of makes us stagger with horror. We're talking about the final great judgment of the King of kings and Lord of lords upon all the world. Or in this case, when he brings it in in the midst of history. And yet in spite of the awful judgment that's about to come, the people seem oblivious to it. They're just proud and and secure in themselves. Verse 5, take a look. They prepare the table. 
They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. The people are heedless of this ominous threat that's about to come upon them. And I just think of how many people on their way to hell and all of the judgment of the eternal God are oblivious and heedless. And it's just like verse 5, it's just like somebody wants to shout to them, Arise, O princes, oil the shield. I mean, be ready. You don't know what's about to come upon you. Wake up. And it really reminds me of what the Lord said about the final judgment of the world. In Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 36, Jesus said, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, but not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah went into the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So, Jesus says, will be the coming of the Son of Man. So, in Isaiah's prophecy now, this mysterious woman is heedlessly unconscious of the fearful, impending judgment that is about to fall upon her head. Now, just like with all the prophets, Isaiah was a seer. He had prophetic eyes, so to speak. The prophets were often told to set a watch, to look out into the prophetic distance for the arrival of God's prophesied purposes. And that's what we have here in verses 6 to 9. Verse 6, let's look at God's text here. Thus the Lord said to me, Go, set a watch, or a watchman, set a watch. Let him announce what he sees in this prophetic vision. He's looking out into the future. When he sees, horse, when he sees riders, horses in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. In other words, pay close attention to what they say. And I think the imagery here is likely that of a passing caravan coming through. You can picture it, right? The animals and the camels and all of these coming just sort of two by two in lines across the desert. And, you know, you're thinking about an age, a time when there's no telegraph to send news ahead. There's no, uh, there's no telephone or internet or anything like that. The way that you're going to get your information about things that are happening in a far-off distant land is to talk to travelers. And what better travelers to talk to than, than roaming caravans? And so here's a caravan coming, and they're bringing news, and the watchman is told to listen carefully for a word from a far-off land. And so verse 8, And he who saw, that is that watchman, he cried out, Upon the watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. 
right? So he's an obedient, careful watchman. In verse 9, and behold, here come riders, horses in pairs, just like God said. He begins to see this, this caravan coming. And, and he, that is probably one of the riders in that caravan, he answered, fallen. Fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods are shattered to the ground. And now, finally, in verse 9, we get the clearest hint as to the near-term historical setting. Babylon. Now, Babylon in Isaiah's day was, you know, that we're talking about around 700 B.C., is not a world power. It, it was... A, a powerful city, but really under the control of the big power of the day, which was the Assyrians, the Assyrian Empire. But eventually, Babylon would overthrow the Assyrian Empire in 612 and grow really into a mighty world power on its own, a really an empire on its own terms. Nebuchadnezzar's vision, remember Babylon was the head of gold, this golden head of all of the nations of the world. So it would eventually, after Isaiah's day, really become a mighty power. And in 586 B.C., this is about, you know, a hundred years or so after Isaiah's ministry, Babylon utterly destroyed the city of Jerusalem, as you know, and took its inhabitants, many of its inhabitants, captive and carried them away into Babylon. And so, really, Babylon, even more than Assyria, is viewed as the great enemy, the great antagonist of the people of God. Assyria brought God's judgment upon the northern kingdom, on Israel, and that was God's just judgment. But Babylon carried away captive the elect remnant of of Judah. And so Babylon and the Babylonian captivity really marks the the low point, this epoch in the history of the people of God. Babylon caused much sighing, much groaning among God's elect people. But Isaiah, in this vision, Isaiah foresaw a a future judgment of God that would fall upon that great empire that was yet to come. And Babylon was defeated several times in the years following this prophecy. And, And it may be that this prophecy referred to any number of those devastations that came upon that city and and eventually that, that empire. But its, its final fall, what is, uh, if you Google the fall of Babylon, this is the date that will come up. It is 539 B.C. And in that period, Babylon was defeated by what actually was its former allies, Media and Persia, that old Elam. They overthrew Babylon in such a way that was actually entirely unanticipated. You remember the book of Daniel and Daniel's record of those events? I believe it's Daniel chapter 5 when he recorded how the king of Babylon was giving a great feast that night. 
the night that Babylon was overthrown. He was eating and drinking and making merry. They were oblivious, really in a lot of ways like this text reads. They were oblivious to what was about to happen. And uh, remember the handwriting on the wall, and Daniel interprets that as a prediction of God's judgment. Well, friends, that very night before the next morning, that king was dead and Babylon had fallen. So Isaiah foresees God's judgment on Babylon. And then in verse 10, keep going with me, verse 10, he turns now to speak directly to Judah, who has been the object of God's chastening in their Babylonian captivity. And he portrays that chastening as a kind of winnowing or threshing. You've seen pictures of people winnowing grain or or read about how people used to thresh out the wheat. They'd take those, those stalks of wheat that they had just harvested, and they would take a stick, and they would beat those stalks until the chaff, the unedible part, that light surrounding, would just break off, and finally they would scatter that to the wind, and then they would have those good kernels. This is a picture of the way that God was going to beat his people with the rod of Babylon and chasten them to purify them so that they would be what he wanted them to be. So Isaiah says in verse 10, O my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. And that was this vision, this word from this writer in this in this, in this vision that would foretell the fact that the people who would beat them down under the hand of God would in turn be held under the judgment of God for their own sins and rebellion and idolatry. Though Babylon would cause much sighing of God's good people, though she will afflict them like a thresher beats the grain, yet in the end, His message is this, Babylon will fall. When you're there for for those years and years under that Babylonian captivity, remember this, Babylon will fall. When you're beaten down under the enemy's hand, remember this, Babylon will fall. And lest you be foolish, and join yourself to Babylon in your heart, be aware of this, Babylon will fall. Now, there's two more oracles here, and I think they're probably connected. At least the imagery kind of carries on. The imagery of the watchman is brought up in the next oracle, and the imagery of the caravan in the one after that. So let's continue on, verse 11. Now, here we have the oracle concerning, most Bibles say, Duma. Is that what yours says? If you have a NASB, it might say something else. But Duma is just a word that means silence. The oracle concerning silence, which I think is an appropriate sort of title as you see how this oracle unfolds. This is another sort of mysterious oracle. There's no explicit nation or event that's, you know, really highlighted. But you do get a hint in the next words. He says, verse 11, One is calling to me from 
Seir, which was in Edom, which, if you remember, was on the southern, kind of the southeast corner of Judah, okay, near the Negev. And, and this is probably a kind of play on words because the word Duma, to whom this oracle is addressed or concerning who it's addressed, is actually, it sounds a lot like Edumia, which is another name for Edom. And so here's an oracle that perhaps has those people in mind. Verse 11, one is calling to me from Seir, watchman. Here's, here's the message coming from the, from the Edomites. Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night is it? You know, in the days before clocks, you wanted to know what time it was, you look up at the sky and you kind of see where the sun is, right? That's pretty easy. But then at night, it gets a little bit more tricky. You could probably figure it out from the stars. But, you know, the easiest way might be if you happen to be near the watch, near the watchman, to just ask him, well, what watch of the night is this? As you know, a lot of times the night was divided up into several watches, usually like four watches of the night. So if you ask the watchman, how late is it? When is it going to be morning? And he said, well, I'm the fourth watch and I'm about halfway through my, my service. You would know that, you know, it's getting, it's getting to be the end of the night. Morning will come soon. Now, in the context of this judgment of God, then the, the people seem to be asking this, how long... Are we in the dark of night? How long are we in danger under this cloud? How long will until the, the day comes when we'll be relieved, when we'll be in the safety of the light? And here's the answer now from the watchman in the night. Verse 12. He gives a really enigmatic answer. He says, morning comes and also the night. Well, thanks. Is it almost morning or is it more night? And the rest of his answer is this. If you will inquire, inquire. Come back again. And best I can tell, I think what God is doing is saying, okay, the timing of this judgment is not going to be revealed to you. But then the third oracle actually also focuses on timing. That's why I think that's kind of the, the emphasis in both of these. It really is a message in this, fourth, in this third oracle that when judgment comes, it will be swift. Look at verse 13. The oracle concerning Arabia. Now, in Isaiah's time, Arabia wasn't a nation like Saudi Arabia is today. It was just a, an area, a geographical area inhabited by many different desert tribes. And so he says, in the thickets in Arabia, you will lodge, O caravans of Dedanites, which is one of the Arabian tribes. They would, they would lodge in the thickets as if they are in hiding from something. And then verse 14, we're told uh, in this prophecy, to the thirsty bring water, meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tima. In other words, these inhabitants of this Arabian town 
are called on, hey, send relief to your fellow tribesmen because you're going to come under a time of great distress when God has his day. In verse 15, he says, For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. Judgment is envisioned here that would really go all the way down into the desert tribes of Arabia, this judgment of God that would come. And, of course, it's unclear in the context of this this oracle exactly when this is going to happen or exactly what this threat is or who it is, the cause of this distress. But what we are told is this, verse verse 16. Here's what is revealed. The Lord says to me, Within a year, according to the years of the hired worker, all the glory of Kedar, which is another one of those tribes, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end, and the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Which could be, the Lord says it's going to be a year, and Within a year, there will be no more um, of these people. He's going to bring his judgment, which could be a prediction of the imminent destruction of these people within a year of this prophecy. And of course, the Assyrians did have a huge impact all the way down into the Arabian Peninsula when they marched upon the Middle East. That would take place. Or this could be a prophecy of future judgment, like the earlier prophecy about the destruction of Babylon, which if it refers to the final destruction is a 150 years in the future, this could be a, a, a looking far into the future. But one thing is clear, when judgment, whenever it comes, it will be swift. Because in less than a year, all of those scattered desert tribes will be decimated, the Lord says. So again, this whole thing is a little bit enigmatic, but a couple of things sort of characterize the the judgment of God, and, and one is this sort of sense of, of the unexpected nature of it, like the timing is uncertain, when is his judgment going to fall? But the other thing that sort of seems to come out in all of this is that when it comes, there's not going to be any escaping. It's going to sweep through, and, and you won't be able to hide. Now I say this is a very challenging chapter to interpret because, really because the prophecies are so vague in terms of identifiable nations and specific historical situations. But I think in this second series of oracles, that's probably intentional because while Isaiah prophesied about God's judgment on all of those surrounding nations, he's also Really more intent, God is more intent on revealing the nature of his judgment at any time upon any people and ultimately pointing us to the great and final judgment of the whole world that is surely coming upon this world someday when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And in my view, I think this is illustrated as well in the book of Revelation, which is what we read earlier, right? Revelation predicts the judgment of God 
upon Babylon as well. Which is really fascinating because by John's day, Babylon had ceased to really exist in any meaningful way as a threat to anybody. And yet John uses this terminology of Babylon, which I think really the term draws on the earlier accounts of historical things that happened in Babylon, right? Go back to the beginning. Babylon's an old name, and at the very beginning, Babylon is just Babel. And in that place, you remember that people raise themselves up as if to reach up to heaven itself. Or consider the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar's day, centuries later, when that great king lifted himself up to be like God until God humbled him. So Babylon then, drawing on these historic manifestations of human pride and arrogance in the face of God, Babylon becomes kind of this quintessential city of man. This proud gathering of humanity to cast off the Lord's rules and break apart His bonds upon them. It stands for any expression of human pride that lifts itself up against God. And that really then, I think, is what's being pictured when we get to Revelation chapter 17. And let me just go back there once again and and put it before our eyes so we can see kind of where this whole thing is going. Revelation 17, verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had... Now follow this, because this is actually very interesting, because there's a parallel coming up. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, came to me and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on what? On many waters. So come, I will show you this. And look down in verse 3. And he carried me away in the Spirit into a what? Right? So this could be why Isaiah spoke so long before of an oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, where the Lord who reveals all things from beginning to end had this in mind, that that here is John who would be carried away into a wilderness to see a woman seated on many waters. And if you're thinking of that ancient city of Babylon, it was on many waters, the great Tigris and Euphrates rivers all through that area. But more than that, this woman also rides on a beast that comes up out of the sea. So here is the wilderness of the sea right in front of us, again, in the book of Revelation. And look in the middle of verse 3 in Revelation, again, chapter 17. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. There are many names for this, right? You could call this Sodom or Egypt or Babylon or Jerusalem or Rome. And her beast, the beast this woman rides is a conglomeration of the four beasts of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. In other words, all of the ungodly empires of the world sort of put together as it were. And verse 5 says, on her forehead, this woman, on the forehead of this woman who is 
a perversion of everything godly. There was a written name, a name of mystery. And what's the name? Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, drunk with the blood of the saints. The blood of our brothers and sisters, drunk, as it were, on the blood of the saints. The blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This woman is any city, any civilization, any worldly power that sets itself up in opposition to and in persecution of the body of Christ. So this is Egypt enslaving the children of Israel or Babylon carrying Judah into captivity or Jerusalem's leadership persecuting Christ and His church or Rome who burned Christians at the stake or on and on it goes. All through the centuries, the Christian martyrs cry out, how long? And, and, and all of these prophecies are telling us that, hey, the timing may be obscure but judgment when it falls will be swift and sure. And the fall of Babylon is certain. It is certain. They're told Babylon will fall. Those saints who are waiting for their blood to be avenged. For the Lord has purposed it. Look at chapter 18 now in, in Revelation 18.1. After this I saw another angel coming down out of heaven, having authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. One day every power that stands against the Lord will fall. That's what's, I think, being pictured here in the, in the biggest sense. Um, in, 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 in an ultimate way. Verse 4 in that same chapter, he goes on to say, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon. Leave her, lest you take part in her sins, and lest you share in her plagues. And that really is the message, at, at the heart of the message this morning. Come out of the world. Come out of self-sufficiency, come out of human pride and rebellion against God, leave the city of destruction and come to the city of Zion. And even those from the city of destruction may be saved. It is a glorious promise that is held out to all who will repent and come to the Savior. And now, in chapter 21, I want you to finish here. Remember, just like one of the seven angels with the seven bowls of judgment called to John and said, come, I will show you this prostitute. And he carried him away in the spirit into a wilderness and he was shown a city called Babylon. Now you have in verse 21 the mirror image of that. And then came to me one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride. Here's a different woman now. Not the harlot, but the bride. Not Babylon, but the city of Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. And that city, chapter 21 goes on to say, is adorned in splendor 
with bedecked with jewels like a bride on her wedding day. She's glorious. She's clean and bright. She's filled with joy at the presence of her Lord. She's a city that doesn't have any need of sun or moon to shine down on it because the glory of God is right in its midst and gives it light everywhere. And that entire city is flooded with the joy and the light of God. It is a tremendous contrast to the fate of the worldly city of Babylon. And this is the this is the really the way that history is going, one of those two things. And the end of that chapter, verse 27 in, in chapter 21, says that nothing unclean will ever enter that city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, so the question that ought to be in every one of my, our hearts is this. Am I a citizen of that city? Is my name in the Lamb's book of life? Savior, if of Zion's city I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity. I will glory in your name. Now, I, this, is an, this is a difficult text. It's strange. It's obscure. But I think there are three things that we can take away from it. Really important lessons for our lives. One is this. That just as it was with Judah, so God's final judgment will be a kind of threshing, a kind of winnowing. And Jesus himself used this kind of illustration One of the kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13, right? He pictures the whole world as as a great field. The field is the world. And in that world, the Lord has his people, the wheat. But Satan also comes and sows weeds, the unbelieving sinners in the world. And in God's providence, he doesn't just take the wheat out of the field, but he leaves the two to grow together all through the course of human history, and then at the end, the Bible says there will be a great harvest and the wheat will be separated from the chaff. And so right now, where we are today is that field growing up side by side. And I'm going to tell you on the same street in your neighborhood, there's wheat and there's chaff. In the same family, in the same family sometimes there may be Wheat and chaff. Sitting in the same row in a church, there may be someone who is the Lord's, and someone sitting right there listening to the same sermon, who in the end, in the final judgment of God, will be given over to the fire. And it is incumbent upon us to be sober and reflective as to which of these we really are. And you know, part of the way that God separates the wheat from the chaff is even now. And he does that through trials and temptations of this life. And those who who are not the Lord's 
prove that because when those things come, they fall away. They just say, it's too hard to be a Christian. Church is not for me anymore. The world is too too good. It's it's better. And and they just come to a point where, where they're threshed out and blown away like the chaff. Brothers and sisters, let let it be. May it be by God's grace that we are truly grain, prepared for the storehouse of heaven. What is it for you? And I think secondly, we should take from this passage that, you know, when the great day of the Lord comes, when His final judgment falls, it will be on the one hand, unexpected. Really, for for unbelieving people, it will catch them unawares. People will be proud and secure. I mean, mark it down. In the day of God's judgment, people will be eating and drinking as if nothing is going to happen. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? All things are as they've always been. But his judgment, when it comes, will be swift and inescapable, like the destruction of Sodom, like the flood in Noah's day. And when it comes, it will carry away the world of sin in such a fashion that no one of us will be able to say, oh, please, you know, let me escape. It, it will be the final judgment of God and it will be too late in that day. And this is why sermons like this, texts like this, the fact that by the providence of God, you're sitting here listening to this right now. This is a mercy to you. It is God's salvation for you. Hear His Word now. Run to Christ. And the third thing I think that we should take away from this is the fact that the day of the Lord on the one hand is a judgment that we all long for. Like Isaiah said, it's, it's, it's what he longed for because it is our deliverance. It is the judgment on persecutors. It is the vindication and glorification of the Savior. And yet at the same time, I think it should make us really shudder when we contemplate the reality of the judgment that is to come. And I will just confess that this is, it is not always the response that first comes to our souls. I don't know if it's just our carnality or the fact that some of the things that God has said seem so far away, seem so unconnected to our everyday lives that, that the final judgment of God does not cause us to sort of have the emotional response that Isaiah had in verses 3 and 4 here in this text, when he sees, when he foresees the judgment of God upon all the world's Babylons. I mean, it makes him sick in his soul, in his heart. And I just thought for a little while about that this week. 
does not our human, our just common humanity, can it not cause us to empathize with those who are heading for that judgment unaware, just uncaring? I read an article in the news this week about some of the recent events in the Ukraine, and there was a the account of this gentleman who was organizing part of the defense of one of the cities, had not been a military man before the war, but was involved in setting up roadblocks and checking people's IDs and just trying to defend the city. And the Russians came in and captured him and all of these other mostly fairly young men, and took them away. And the article went on to recount how over the next two or three days they were beaten and abused in all kinds of ways. And it's really kind of unusual for me to have this sort of emotional response to an article, a news article like that, but in the midst of reading that article, I, I just began to imagine my own son, who just turned 18, who could be in a war, and I imagine him in that situation facing all of that incredible heartache and the fear that surely those men had before finally, one by one, they were shot to death, all of them, including... This man who was shot and yet survived and ended up telling the story to the BBC. And you know, it just, it, it, here's what it did in, in reading this whole context about Isaiah and just shuddering at the judgment that was to come. I thought, you know, what those men went through that's moved me so much. I literally sat in my office and I, This is just a rare thing for me, but I bawled, I mean, loudly. (laughs) Put my head down on the desk and just cried and wept. But I got to thinking, if, if that kind of thing moves me, friends, we're talking about something that is, that is not even comparing to that. The judgment of the Almighty God, an eternal judgment that awaits real people, actually people that you know, right? People around us, people that we love, people that we've met, people who have mothers and fathers. And I I pray that the Lord will move my heart more when I consider his revelation about his own judgment that's going to fall upon all unbelieving sinners. And brothers and sisters, I, I just pray that that will move me and move you out of just human compassion, among other things, to to speak the gospel to those who are dying and going to hell. 
May the Lord be gracious and use this word in our lives. Heavenly Father, we have puzzled through this text and the best we've understood tried to take from it what you have for us. We ask now that you would let it have its good effect. In Jesus' name.